You're listening to theoutdoorstation.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the pod scene from the unlikely location of central London. I'm here to meet a man who's made a major contribution to the great outdoors and to the life of hill walkers and ramblers everywhere over the last 15 years or so. Today, Lord Chris Smith of Finsbury is well known as the president of the Ramblers Association, but in 1997, as just plain Chris Smith MP, he was made culture secretary in Tony Blair's incoming government and he set about with colleagues to introduce the framework for the access laws that many hill walkers in England and Wales now take for granted. Well, I'm here at Somerset House where Chris now has his offices and I'm just about to pop inside to talk to him about his lifelong love of the hills, to consider how we might extend those rights of access further and to contemplate how we can enthuse a new generation of young people to be inspired by the great outdoors. Chris, welcome to the Outdoor Station. Uh, great pleasure to uh, to be with you, and uh, I'm always happy to have an excuse to talk about the outdoors. Now, there's a lot to talk about, not least your role in the Ramblers, and thinking about the future of the outdoors, how we encourage more people to take part in it, how we extend our rights. But first off, really, I mean, I'm keen to just talk about you and your walking because you've been a walker for a long, long time. It's been an important part of your life, hasn't it, since you were quite a young man? Oh, it's been a hugely important part of my life. Uh, I, I think the moment when um, it really clicked for me was when I think I was about 12 or 13. Uh, and uh, the school I was at uh, sent... Uh, all the third form of the of the of the senior school uh, off for two weeks to various parts of Scotland. The school was based in Edinburgh, where I was growing up, and uh, I ended up with a group of about ten um, fellow pupils um, in uh, Torridon at uh, Kinloch U, and uh, we spent two weeks climbing the hills, uh, doing some work for the Nature Conservancy, uh, having the most wonderful time and I came back completely in love with the uh, with the Scottish Hills um, I loved those two weeks I uh, went on to spend the whole of the rest of my life uh, doing more of the same and um, I uh, I, I quite rapidly got the Munro bug. I uh, uh, wanted to climb all the Munros. I, I completed uh, my round, my, my initial round of the Munros in 1989. Um, I've carried on climbing hills ever since. So uh, it's been a very big part of my life. It's not a bad place to start, Torridon, is it? I can imagine how that would inspire um, a passion of lifetimes walking. But um, you've not just stuck to Scotland, have you? You've walked quite extensively around the globe. Uh, it's not just been in Scotland, but Scotland is my first love, and uh, I always try and get back there as often as I can. Uh, my favourite mountain uh, in the whole world is Ben Allegan, which is in Torridon. Um, uh, but no, it's not just been uh, in Scotland. I know the lakes very well. Uh, one of the uh, delightful things about my life at the moment is that I'm chairman of the Wordsworth Trust, which is based in Grasmere, 
I get the opportunity to uh, go to Grasmere uh, reasonably frequently and uh, head up into the fells. Um, I've done uh, quite a lot of walking in North Wales. Um, uh, I've walked the Pennine Way, so yeah, I've covered quite a lot of England and Wales uh, as well as Scotland. Um, uh, abroad, I've uh, done a bit of walking in the Austrian Alps, I've done some walking in the Pyrenees, I've done some walking in the Picos to Europa, um, I've been up to the summit rim of Mount Fuji. So, uh, yes, I've been around. Um, I, there are still quite a lot of things I haven't done. Um, I. I would love one of these days to do the Appalachian Trail in, um, uh, in the US. I would love to go and do some trekking in the Himalaya. Um, but uh, always good to have more mountains that you still want to climb. Yes, one of the problems is, and a lot of guidebook writers often say this, that there are, there are too many mountains in the world for one lifetime. You perhaps need two or three to, to knock them all off. Uh, absolutely, but uh, in a way uh, that life would be much less interesting if there weren't still unclimbed mountains around that are there to be hoped for and to be planned for. That's the great joy of it, isn't it? Because it doesn't matter how many people have gone up that mountain before you who've, or have struggled through something like the Larry Grew even. You know, the, the first time you do that yourself, particularly as a young man, it's a fantastic challenge, and you might as well be the first person that's ever done it. Oh, absolutely. And, um, of course, the other thing to remember, uh, as anyone who goes walking a lot will know, uh, is that what, you can do the same walk on different days, and the weather and the light and the views and uh, the circumstances make it a totally different experience from one day uh, to the next. And there are, uh, there are quite a few mountains that, um, when I did them uh, first time round, couldn't see a thing from a few hundred feet up onwards up to the summit um, totally uh, covered in cloud quite often with the wind battering away and the rain stinging in your face um, and then a few years later I'd go back again and it would be a glorious sunny day and I'd be able to see everything now both of those are experiences to be savoured um, but they're totally different experiences Yes, one of my ambitions is to see Glencoe before I die. Every time I've been there, the weather's always been foul. Now, we associate you, I guess, mostly with being a politician. And for your political career, you represented um, an inner-city London seat with all the difficulties to grasp with there and the intensity of that. Um, and yet, there the, the has always been, haven't there, quite a little cluster of people in, the, in, in Parliament, in the Commons, who've been keen, keen hill walkers. And, uh, I mean, is that something that helps deal with the, um, the, the pressing nature of those inner-city problems? Uh, well, I always used to think it was a rather wonderful irony that I represented the constituency in the country which probably had the least amount of green space of any constituency. Um, we had uh, one or two relatively small parks and that was it. All the rest was concrete and brick and, and, uh, and housing and, uh, uh, and roads and so on. Um, and I think in a way what getting away to the hills and the countryside 
uh, actually does. It, it, it helps to put everything in a political life into proper perspective. Because sometimes in the hothouse of Westminster particularly, you can get totally bound up in uh, uh, what's happening and what the detail of this or that policy is or who's doing what in terms of uh, being up or down in the party. And so I, uh, all, all of that gets properly... Uh, put into uh, perspective when you're standing on top of a mountain ridge and you see half of Scotland uh, spread out around you. Um, and uh, it makes you reflect on what's actually important in life. And even the bad times, you know, when you're knackered and soaking wet. I mean, you're knackered and soaking wet, aren't you? It doesn't matter where you are or where you're coming from at all. There's something, of course, about coming through adversity, uh, which anyone who goes out hill walking knows all about. Um, and uh, that's not a bad lesson for a political life, I suppose. I, uh, you're also right to identify the... Uh, fact that particularly in the Labour Party, also to a certain extent true in other parties, but particularly in the Labour Party, there's always been a sort of what one might call a radical rambling tradition. The, um, the ILP ramblers back in the 1930s, um, the, uh, the, the mass trespass, of course, most famously on Kinder, um, which uh, was very much about demanding rights of access to uh, the grouse moors that were kept as the privilege for the elite. Um, the uh, Barbara Castle in her youth was part of, uh, of, of a, a rambling group uh, who used to go out walking and then uh, have political discussions in the evenings. Um, uh, there's, there's been this thread running through um, Labour politics for many years now uh, of a, a connection between recreation in the outdoors and progressive radical political views. Um, and I, I suppose it's a little bit uh, uh, because uh, partly a lot of the Labour Party grew up and developed in the industrial towns of the north of England um, and the moors and the countryside were on the doorstep and uh, they were, they, you could get on a bus, you could go out of town, you could get off and you could be a free person. Um, uh, and also it, you needed a pair of boots and that was it. You, 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 you went out uh, and it was something that was accessible for everyone. It, you didn't need to pay a fortune to go and play on a golf course or to uh, uh, get uh, really expensive equipment. It, it, it was something that was much more democratic than that. I think that has something to do with that great tradition in the Labour Party of engagement with the outdoors and outdoor recreation. And, of course, um, younger listeners will remember or maybe they're not so long, will remember John Smith and Robin Cook. They're very high-profile figures who made no secret of their love of the outdoors. Uh, well, John Smith, of course, uh, who was a, a great friend of, uh, of mine, and uh, uh, I still uh, mourn his, uh, his untimely uh, death. He would have made a completely wonderful leader of, uh, of, of the party going forward and, and would have made a terrific prime minister. Um, uh, he he loved the Scottish Hills, and particularly after he'd had his first heart attack, um, and I think that was back in 1987. And um, uh, after he recovered from that, he he just decided, I'm going to 
get lots more exercise and the form of exercise he decided he was going to do was to go and bag some Munros. And from that time through until his death in 1994, um, he uh, climbed, I think, 108 Munros. He loved it. He used to seize any opportunity he could to uh, uh, to get out. And indeed, uh, uh, just about five weeks uh, before he died, I was uh, uh, up in the northwest of Scotland with him. Uh, we climbed a, a, a mountain up above Achnasheen uh, one day and then the next day um, over uh, in the Benjera group uh, near Ullapool. And uh, those were the last two mountains he went up. And I'll never forget him standing on the top of Fianben and above Achnasheen uh, and it had been cloud covered right the way up and it was, it was a lot of snow around. Um, we put our crampons on, we got up to the, uh, to, to the trig point at the top and suddenly the clouds all shifted and we could see right across to the Torridon Mountains and, uh, and all the fannics uh, spread out um, and John just looked and felt completely on top of the world at that moment um, and then of course five weeks later he was dead and um, very sad. But it is interesting, isn't it, that you you know you can have a heart attack and yet, as part of your determination to rehabilitate yourself, I mean, I've know many walkers actually who are in, in a similar position. Climbing Munros, climbing 100 Munros is no mean business at all. It just shows you what you can do by way of recuperation. Oh, and um, I, I'm absolutely sure that if John hadn't uh, been getting that exercise and tackling uh, all of those uh, all of those hills, um, the the tragedy might well have happened uh, much sooner than it did. Mm. Now we talked about the radical tradition, and you know, this isn't a um, a part politically partisan podcast, but it but that um, we think about the Kinder trespass. And sometimes we have to work hard to remember that actually it took a long, long time before those principles really did enshrine themselves in law. And it, it took a new government in 97, really, for the determination to push on and do something about that. And, you know, looking from the perspective of 2008, with all the kind of hackneyed views we have of the world, really, sometimes it's difficult to remember how that felt. And for me, 1997 felt almost like 1964. It was a very fresh new beginning. And um, you were given the job as Tony Blair's first culture secretary to unpick this, begin to unpick this issue of, of access. Um, must be a stunning achievement looking back on it. Um, well, um, you're right to say it was a, it was a long time coming. The uh, uh, the first access to to mountains uh, bill presented to Parliament uh, was way back in 1884, I think. James Bryce, uh, who uh, give due credit to him, he was a Liberal MP, um, but uh, he brought forward a, a, a bill to provide access to the hills. Uh, didn't get it through. And uh, for the next hundred years, 110 years, people were arguing and campaigning and mounting trespasses and uh, having rallies and uh, doing the lobbying work to try and get the law changed. Um, and then um, uh, the post-war Labour government brought in the, uh, the, the National Parks 
Act, which began the process of creating national park authorities. And then the Labour government in the 1960s uh, created the countryside parks and the Pennine Way and that sort of thing. But we still didn't have the right of access. And uh, it took us until we came in in 97 before we actually managed to do it. Uh, and uh, I'm proud of two things. One was uh, when I was the uh, shadow uh, shadow cabinet spokesman on environment back in uh, 92, 93. Uh, I wrote the first policy document on environmental policy for the party uh, in Trust for Tomorrow and put in there an absolutely clear commitment to introducing a right to roam through legislation and that was accepted by the party and it went into the party's uh, platform. It was there on the record when we came in in 97. So there was no excuse for not doing it. Um, and then um, while we were in government in that first period of, uh, uh, of government in 97 to 2001, uh, I worked very closely with Michael Meacher, who was the uh, environment um, uh, minister at the time, and it was his legislation. He he did the steering of the uh, of, of the countryside and rights of way bill through Parliament, um, but I was there to uh, to back him up. And there were various moments when, uh, particularly um, the people around the Prime Minister and at Number Ten, were uh, getting a little bit nervous about what this might mean for um, uh, weren't the landowners going to get terribly upset and what about the countryside alliance and what were they going to do um, and um, the um, we, we had to stiffen their sinews and say no look this was a, a manifesto commitment we said we were going to do it we're going to do it and I was very pleased to be able to along with Michael Mitri who deserves a huge amount of credit in this uh, I was very pleased to be able to uh, to push for it to happen. Now, um, a lot of people look north to Scotland and their legislation and their free access and the ability to camp wild anywhere that's reasonable. I think it's a bit more technical than that, but it, it doesn't feel like that when you're there. But, of course, it's a very different kind of a place. And um, some of those interests that... Um, fight to hold on to la land in England and Wales take some, take some dealing with, don't they? Oh, the, the, um, the whole presumption in Scotland has always been very different from uh, in England. There's been a, uh, effectively a presumed right of access in Scotland other than where you are likely to cause damage and um, uh, that's never been the case in England. So whereas there were presumption rights in Scotland... So it's almost as if the common law was different in Scotland to England. Exactly. Uh, in, in England, uh, it, it, it's almost seeking a privilege rather than having a right. And uh, so in putting the countryside um, uh, rights of way um, uh, legislation in place, we had to try and bring as much of what one might call the landowning class along with us. 
which is why it's all very carefully framed and it needed a lot of, of mapping of areas to take place and then the possibility of people to object and then public inquiries and uh, so on. So it took a, quite a few years actually to implement but we had to go about it that way because we didn't have that basic groundwork of common of effective common law which you did in Scotland. So when people look at that and think, well, it's maybe not ambitious enough when we look at Scotland, we have to remember it's taken a hundred years to get to this point, and not a not, not inconsiderable struggle at all. It, 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 it had taken a long time, far too long, I and mean, we should have had this years ago, but um, uh, when, when we put it in place, yes, we had to go carefully, but actually... What happened was um, the whole process of mapping and then inquiries and, and agreement on the areas to be opened up uh, happened almost consensually. Yes, there were some um, hearings and some objections and minor redrawings of boundaries here and there, uh, and one or two coasts célèbres like Madonna and her, uh, her bound, the boundaries of her estate, but, but most of it happened pretty much by consensus. And, uh, and of course, what subsequently happened is the whole thing has, uh, has now been implemented, the rights are there, people are using them, and uh, it, it, it's almost as if um, there's, there's been no earthquake at all. It, it, it's happened so splendidly uh, that I think you'd probably find even the Country Landowners Association now uh, saying, well, they can just about live with it. I mean, it's easy for us, particularly us city-bound walkers, to think of... Um Landowners, certainly in the uplands, as being the kind of people that chase you off hills with a shotgun. I, I know that's happened to you in your time. Um, but um, we forget often that m many, many of them now are seeing their a major part in their role as being the stewards of, of our uplands. And uh, um, you can see the benefits of that. And I, the more, as I get older, perhaps, more and more I think that... Um, Maybe it's important for us as walkers and hikers to, to engage in that and to make some investment back in those local economies, you know, use public transport, buy your sandwiches locally if you can, make use of local resources, because um, spe especially since the right to roam came, in the last 10, 15 years there's been an explosion of, of hill walking, and I'm always, I'm always struck by how that's transformed some of the local economies that were really struggling. I can remember Snowdonia 20 years ago, you know, when you'd never have thought that would have been a tourist centre. Um, but outdoor tourism, sustainable economic tourism, has, has almost been a saviour of some of these places, hasn't it? It's absolutely right. And uh, I think the most recent study that was done of the Highlands of Scotland uh, showed that the walking economy... Uh, brought in something like £60 million pounds, uh, a year to the Highlands of Scotland that would not be there otherwise. And uh, for remote areas where very often you have marginal um, uh, uh, groups of, uh, of people scraping a living from the land and from bed and breakfast and, uh, and so on, um, this can be an absolute lifesaver for the uh, for the local economy and when we went through the foot and mouth uh, trauma of um, uh, 2001 uh, in Cumbria for example um, uh, because of the impact on tourism in Cumbria um, the uh, the economy just went through the floor uh, and it took several years to recover 
Um, and I think we, we, we forget how important economically um, uh, recreation on foot in countryside and mountain areas is to those rural parts of the economy. Um, and I think you're also right to identify um, uh, many landowners now as being responsible stewards for important areas of land. Um, uh, the emphasis all on now on conservation of, of the land, on sustainable methods of, uh, of using the land. Um, uh, and uh, I, I see much more partnership between people walking and people owning land uh, than I would have dreamt was going to be possible 20 years ago. Um, and it's perhaps interesting that the great battles over access over the last few years have been where there have been incomers to landowning, uh, people like Madonna uh, or like Anne Gloag in, um, uh, in Perthshire, um, it, it's people who aren't part of that long tradition of stewardship of the land who are objecting to uh, people having access. Yes, I was in Snowdonia uh, over the New Year period and uh, the weather was particularly foul and I climbed up to the top of the Glitter Ridge and then thought, actually, there isn't much fun in this. Came down and then I thought, well, actually, I'm just going to go and wander over the, the lower fells. And you see the little little access stickers and um, it's quite a nice thought to know you, you can just wander over there now without worrying now there are some people who are concerned about pushing those rights a bit further and particularly at the moment there's a, a campaign uh, make wild camping legal in, in England and Wales like everything else those kind of ideas have to be negotiated and built up and that trust and stewardship sense of partnership has to be fostered as well mm. um, I, I, I think that, that quite a good principle for, for asking the question should we bring in legislation uh, is do we actually need it uh, and uh, I'm not aware of a huge problem in terms of wild camping if, the, if there were a great problem if people weren't able to uh, uh, to camp uh, out in the middle of nowhere uh, uh, whilst they're uh, on a, a, a long walk then of course it's something that we would need to look at but I'd have other things higher up my agenda um, I, I think we need to uh, do uh, more work immediately on coastal access uh, uh, along cliffs and foreshore and uh, and beaches, no legal right at the moment to walk uh, uh, around the coastline of England and Wales. There is in Scotland, but not in England and Wales. And uh, absurdly, you have a legal right to take a boat across uh, a, a piece of water over the foreshore, but when the tide's out, you have no legal right to walk. I mean, it is a nonsense, uh, and that would be higher up my list, I think. Um, uh, looking at access to riverbanks, um, access to areas of woodland. Um, I think there are, there are areas uh, of, of concern there that I'd want to, uh, uh, to tackle first. Um, wild camping, yes, if we can identify a problem, absolutely I'd add to the list. But um, uh, top of my list at the moment would be coastal access. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting seeing a lot of the proponents of this being in Scotland, and I hadn't thought about it in the sense that it's a very different tradition, very different tradition of land ownership and um, lawmaking as well. And I guess in England everything is negotiated in that rather opaque way that other nations don't quite appreciate it for time. But certainly I've got a friend who's a, um, a keen long-distance walker, and he, for his next big project, he wants to walk around the coastline of Britain, and he's he's watching this legalisation of coastal walking very closely, and hoping that by the time he gets the chance to do it, <laughs> the new laws will have come into fruition. Well, we're, uh, we're, we're getting there. Um, the, um, uh, Natural England uh, published proposals, uh, I think now about uh, six or eight months ago, uh, for a coastal corridor of uh, of access. Uh, rights and the government welcomed it and put it out for consultation. I think the consultation was reasonably positive. Uh, now they've just got to, got to get it into the uh, to the script for for the Queen's speech. Uh, hopefully next time round. So those people who are into campaigning mode, they might look at how they can pressure their MPs to make sure that fits into the legislative round and the legislative framework. That might be a useful thing for people to do. That would be an extremely useful thing to do because there's always competition for what goes into the government's legislative programme for any particular year. And these are the sort of things which uh, they tend to get squeezed out by yet another criminal justice bill or yet another bill about education or whatever. Um, whereas actually it's the sort of thing which a government, perhaps with an eye to a forthcoming election, might think this is actually something which would gladden the hearts of rather a lot of people, let's do it. So the more MPs they can um, persuade to put some pressure on Gordon to include it in the next Queen's speech, the better. Well, there you go. Those of you listening who are into the campaigning mode at the moment, there's a big clue as to where you might go next and, uh, and to what the next lever might be. Um, now, changing tack just a little bit, I mean, you've retired from frontline politics now, though you've still in the, in the, in the, been elevated to the House of Lords, but that's given you time to do lots of other things in life, including to become the president of the Ramblers Association, which must be a fascinating job in itself and, and something of an honour for Hillwalk, I guess. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a very dignified uh, thing to, to, to have happen to you. And uh, rather wonderfully, you doesn't require uh, any real work. I, uh, I, I have to go along once a year to the annual council meeting of the, of the Ramblers uh, and do a speech and fire everyone up and get them all enthusiastic about the work of the Ramblers. But uh, I don't have to attend endless committee meetings and uh, I have no power at all. I, I can't uh, uh, tell anyone or cast a vote or anything about what they should do, but I can act as a little bit of a figurehead and a spokesperson and I can uh, pop up on the radio from time to time uh, championing the Ramblers' cause. And uh, uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a rather fine thing to be able to do. I'm very privileged to be able to do it. Now, the Ramblers, of course, are a much underestimated organisation, I guess, very important, and we tend to take them for granted. But they're, they're there working very hard, aren't they, most of the time, engaging with government, engaging with all kinds of agencies to, to push on this agenda of access to the, to the open 
countryside. If it hadn't been for the hard slog of the Ramblers Association over many, many years, we would not have the right to roam legislation on the on the statute book now, because they were absolutely crucial in keeping the flame alive over many years, uh, and then doing a lot of the detailed work of working out how the proposals could be uh, put together and how they could be made to work. Then they were doing the lobbying and arguing and persuading and uh, it was a terrific job that uh, that they did over, over that. And a very professional job. Oh, totally. And one of the wonderful things about the Ramblers is it's this great combination of really high-powered professionalism at, at their head office. They know how to lobby, how to campaign, how to pull the political levers, coupled with um, it, this vast number of local grassroots groups around the country uh, who are all into uh, going out on walks, enjoying the countryside, and tearing down barbed wire and making sure that paths are kept open. And it's that combination of, of uh, the national professionalism and the local on-the-ground presence that makes the Ramblers such a strong organisation. Yes, I've been involved in quite a few political campaigning organisations in my time, and they're as good and as effective as any, I would guess. Oh, yes, indeed. Um, one of the things that's always disappointed me a bit is that the uh, the Ramblers um, only have about a hundred thousand members. Uh, now, if you if you look across other similar bodies like uh, the RSPB or um, the National Trust, they have millions of members. And here we have the Ramblers who uh, are active in the most popular sport that uh, exists in the country: going for a walk. Uh, which is at the heart of all the issues about sustainability and uh, uh, the stewardship of the environment for future generations, uh, that in the midst of an obesity crisis has the absolute answer to the problem of obesity, which is getting people on their feet walking. Um, so it's absolutely at the heart of a, a, an array of totally current Issues, um, and yet its membership is sort of stuck around that hundred thousand mark. So the more people we can encourage to join up and to start involving themselves in the work of the Ramblers Association, the better. You've just reminded me my membership's lapsed. <laughs> I must rush out of video. But it makes an important point that that we do have a very very effective. Um, campaigning and representative organisation that's been extraordinarily successful in modern times and we should cherish it and we should look after it. We should cherish it, we should uh, uh, acknowledge the good work it's doing and we should join. So go to the website, Google the Ramblers and uh, you can pay online I think, can't you? Uh, yes, all up to date, modern technology, no problem. Now um, one of the things that fascinates me at the moment is how different communities are discovering the hills in the way in which those pioneers coming out of the factories discovered them, um, you know, when coming out of the Manchester mills and whatever. But I've, I've noticed certainly, uh, I come from Birmingham, and I noticed the Pakistani communities I work with there, there's a big interest in the outdoors. Um, you see groups going off to Snowdonia now and uh, taking over hostels for a weekend. Uh, same is true of some of our Afro-Caribbean communities. Um, there's a lot to do in still encouraging more and more people out onto the hills, isn't there? Um, I, I, I 
know that the, the, the pleasure, the enjoyment, the uplift, the um, wonderful access to fresh air and exercise that it's given to me over many years has been just terrific. And I want as many people as possible to be able to have that same opportunity and that same enjoyment. Um, and one of the things I've always thought, I, I came to hill walking because the school I was at uh, took us out and threw us into it uh, and it, it just, like a light bulb going on, it suddenly worked for me. Um, and I think the secret is making sure that schools everywhere um, give their pupils the opportunity to explore, to get out, to enjoy, to discover the joys of being in the outdoors. Um, it, it's something I've always felt was important. I was I was working towards the end of my time as Secretary of State. I was working together with the uh, Department for Education, as it then was, to see if we could get um, a, a, a proper program in place for this opportunity to be able to be guaranteed to every pupil at every school around the country. So uh, to give them the chance to... to uh, experience the outdoors and then to take it further if they wanted to that still isn't there uh, and uh, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a big task that we need to keep on pushing for. At last year's outdoor show I spoke to Richard Caborn who was then Minister of Sports and he said to me that he thought this whole issue about making it easier for schools and other youth organisations to take people out in the hills was a bit of becoming a bit of a pressing priority, and he thought maybe with all the you know, the understandable difficulties we've had over recent years around health and safety, that perhaps the balance had shifted a bit too far the other way. It's it's actually quite a momentous thing now to organise a school trip up to Torridon for two weeks, and I guess there aren't many teachers that wouldn't look at that without a great deal of trepidation. Is, is this something that really we should be giving some more thought about? Because the idea of guarantees through education um, has become quite a mainstream one, hasn't it? Make, guaranteeing, for example, each young person has a cultural experience or experience of performance or whatever. But the more I think about it as we talk, the, the, the notion of guaranteeing the outdoor experience is, is pretty vital. Uh, I, I, I think, yes, we need to press for it. And you're right to identify the whole approach to... Uh, health and safety protection and the taking of risks um, uh, is absolutely crucial to it. Uh, we've become so averse to allowing kids to take some risks. And uh, let's face it, going up a mountain involves taking risks. Uh, and if you take a view that under no circumstances should you allow any child in a school setting uh, to be subject to any kind of risk, then you're never going to get them out into the outdoors. You have to accept that, yes, some of this stuff is going to be just a little bit risky. And, of course, you take every precaution, you make sure all the, the leaders are properly trained, you make sure that you don't do anything stupid, um, but you realise that, now, yes, possibly... Someone's going to stumble over a rock and break their leg. Uh, and you must make sure that in those circumstances, the school can't be sued, the teacher can't be sued, um, and uh, it, it's not going to prevent 
any of this sort of thing happening ever. Um, so we need to reassess how we approach that issue of risk, how we ensure the best possible safety, but nonetheless getting a bit of adventure at the same time. Now, um, we've already established that pushing for legislation isn't always the answer to everything, but is this one area where really the, the schools, the other authorities that are effectively having to take responsibility for that risk need that extra support? I mean, might it need legislation or you know, a very serious look at guidelines, government guidelines, to, to really turn that around? It, it certainly needs a look at government guidelines and uh, uh, the Department for Children, Schools and Families uh, uh, is probably the right place for that sort of discussion to take place. Um, it, it, whether it needs a change of legislation or whether it could be done by some sort of government indemnity, or, or do you, I, I, I don't know what the best answer is, but what we do need to do is get people round a table with ministers at the uh, Department for Children and Schools um, to sort out some solutions so we can give uh, kids all across the country a bit of a taste of the outdoors, a bit of a taste of adventure, something to be excited by, something to find that, yes, it's going to inspire them for the rest of their lives. That sounds to me like something worth campaigning for. People of our generation always come out with those stories about it was... It was a one teacher who made the difference, or it was that trip to Snowdonia or the lakes or the Scottish Highlands that did it. And actually, most young people of our age are not having that experience through schools now. So um, something for us to think about in the outdoor world, I've, I've no doubt about that. Um, well, it's been a fascinating conversation, just thinking about this year and the coming year. Have you got any big walking projects lined up over the next... Or ambitions of mountain ranges you want to knock off over the next year or two? Uh, one, of my one of my great regrets is that uh, uh, now, uh, being based in London, having a hugely busy life, uh, I'm not able to get out uh, nearly as much as I'd like to. Uh, I have a trip up to Scotland uh, happening in May. Um, I'm going to be in the Lake District uh, or a couple of weeks before that. Uh, if I don't get up onto a, a, a fell or a hill um, uh, pr pretty smartly after I get there, I will be very disappointed. Are you like many of us, you get quite ratty and miserable if you can't get out to the hills that often. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, and uh, I, it, uh, when, when I was growing up and I was based up in Edinburgh, and uh, it was so much easier just to nip off to... to uh, get up something if uh, if the weather was halfway decent. Um, now it all has to be planned. It all has to be booked in in advance. I have to get up there. I, I come what may. If it's pouring with rain, I'll get out because it's worth it. Absolutely is. I think it was Janet Street Porter that once said your predecessor at the Ramblers, who once said, um, if you want a nice quiet time in the hills, go out in the middle of the week or when the weather is atrocious. And it's not a bad philosophy, is it? <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd like some good weather from time to time as well. <laughs> Chris, thanks very much. It's been good talking to you. Thank you. 
Well, I hope you found that interview as fascinating as I did. It's always good to remember from time to time just how hard and for how long people had to fight for the rights that many of us now take for granted. You can support the work of the Ramblers Association by visiting their website at www.theramblers.org.uk and there you can find out all about their local and national campaigning, their local and national activities and of course you can join and also make a donation if you so wish. Um, That's about it for this podcast. I hope to be speaking to you next from a more suitable location, for example, on the side of a hill. Until then, I'm Andy Howell. Take care and happy hiking. This independent programme has been brought to you by theoutdoorsstation.co.uk.